In this third podcast produced by JEIC, Rebetzin Yehudis Skolshevsky of Shiviti in Jerusalem speaks with JEIC's Rabbi Shmuel Feld about how conversations on faith should aim not to provide certitude, but rather to lead students to find their own meaning in Jewish life and learning. I, we're going to be interviewing Yehudis Golshevsky, who is a extraordinary, learned, and exceptional teacher. And I am extremely privileged to be able to interview her for this project. Thank you. Let me start by asking some simple questions in order to help draw out some ideas that, that we could uh, talk about, specifically in regard to the idea of getting to know God. <clears throat> How do you introduce a notion of God to students? Well, I mean, that's going to depend a lot on the students, right? We have the way, the way that I would introduce the concept is not, you know, with adult students. I focused, my whole career has been focused on adult education, but I've also dealt with younger students. And, um, and so the, it's always going to be from the perspective of who they are. You know, it's not about my presentation. It's about, you know, it's about f- first figuring out with whom I am dealing, you know, with whom I'm speaking. So I usually try to focus on my own projection of myself in the place of that student, myself in the place of those students, whether I'm talking to six-year-olds or 60-year-olds or 16-year-olds, I have to be able to place myself within their framework and as much as it's possible to be able to suit my conversation with them. And of course, it also has to do not only with age, but also with situation. I mean, if I'm dealing with groups of college students, let's say, a group of college students who've come and um, their Jewish education is minimal. So I, ha- I must find a language to convey what it is that I want to share um, in, the, in terms that they're going to understand, and that's obvious. And, and um, I, just to uh, pinpoint it, though, I feel that the engagement with God is, is ultimately the most universal of experiences. And so I have never felt at a loss about making that communication because I always work from the assumption that it's a natural, it is a natural engagement for everyone, whether you're six or 60 or 16 or um, grew up with no Jewish education or grew up in this country or in that country. My assumption, my beginning assumption is always that it's very natural and it's, it's the most natural of all natural impulses to be able to, for a human being to be able to interact with the numinous, you know, that's the, that's, that's the term C.S. Lewis used. And I, I really love it with the numinous, you know, the unseen, the ineffable. And, um, and, and that's something that's universal. So there is no, there should not be any group of people or students with whom I can't engage. The only question is whether I have enough imagination to be able to, find the common language, you know? Correct. So how do you set up an environment for them to take it seriously for themselves and others about talking about a Kaddish Baruch Because one of the problems, obviously, is when you talk about God, um, there's a tendency from certain people's standpoint to either make a joke about it or to uh, blank out a little bit. So how do you make them take that seriously? First of all, I think that when you have a we'll call it like the present engaged, invested educator. 
Like if I'm in that place of being very present, invested and engaged, and this is something, my relationship with God is something that is an essential part of myself, then it's very hard to take, even for a kind of, we'll call it, you know, like the, the, um, you know, let's say, what's the age group that they can really be, you know, kind of dismissive. I don't know. Your 13 year old. Yeah. Middle school. So the middle schooler, the, the tendency to kind of blow off and, and dismiss is very hard to do even for a middle schooler. If the, if the adult is, is articulate, invested, engaging, interesting, and obviously is taking it very seriously themselves. So to the extent that as an educator, I walk in there really committed in my way of being in my relationship with Hashem. That's something that's conveyed to them. And so it's hard to, it's hard for them to be dismissive. I, I, I can give you an example. I have, um, I have a student who now runs a program for the last couple of years for uh, young women who grew up in observant homes and who are disengaged and have been disengaged for a long time. And then they come back to Israel, they've come to Israel and they're sort of uh, rediscovering themselves and re-engaging with their Yiddishkeit. Now, that's, it, it's a beautiful project that they're running. And um, on occasion, I've been called in and you know, asked to come in and, and work with these girls. And they're very disillusioned. They can be very, very dismissive. But I've never had the experience walking in there of not being able to engage with them. Why? Because they see that I'm there for them. They see that I'm real. I, that I'm real with my relationship with God. And so they may be on the outs or they may be dismissive from their own place of having gone through whatever traumas they've gone through, which are actual. And nevertheless, we can still have a common language because they see that I am being genuine in my genuine and also um, approaching them in a genuine way, understanding them in a genuine way. And so we're able to have a conversation about it, even if their first impulse, the first 10 minutes of that kind of engagement can be rough because, you know, there's a lot of pushback. There's nothing they want to talk about. They've already heard too much, right. but um, it's, it's, it, it's not difficult to sort of come to their side. Like instead of it being, they're used to it being an adversarial conversation and to just sort of take down the, the border and say, Oh, I, I understand why you'd be angry. I am, you know, being angry is also part of a relationship. Like you can't hate the thing that you don't believe exists, you know, like it's, and so instead of it being that I'm on one side with my belief and they're on their side with their lack of belief or their, or their, or their desire not to engage with it. I I like to come around to the other side and be on their side of that barrier so that there's no longer a barrier. And, and it's usually a, it is possible, I think, to accomplish this in a short period of time. But it requires um, it requires a lot of focus and a lot of willingness to be vulnerable with your students. And to say, I have felt that before. I understand that. I I I have I have felt I have felt dismissive. I have also not wanted to engage. And, And that's already it's at variance with the way that most educators are going into their classrooms, you know, in the in a kind of state of vulnerability. One of the things that, that uh, happens when you're a teacher is you want to come in with all the answers and you want to come in looking like the authority and creating the hierarchy. And what you're saying about Amuna, which is very powerful, is that it has to be modified in a significant way. There has to be a different kind of leadership than when you're just trying to impart knowledge. 
I had one of my students sent, uh, we, have a, we have a group for, uh, for our learning group at Chiviti, where uh, the women's program that I run. So we have a WhatsApp group, and one of the students put up this little clip today, which I think probably your educators who are participating in this have probably already seen and passed around, but if you haven't, it's a good one. So this, this young woman, you know, opens out this little clip on TikTok or whatever it is, saying, I'm a teacher, I'm a middle, a middle school teacher, and, you know, I just want, I wrote a song to share with you all about my experiences with them um, doing all this online learning and um, distance learning. And so she pulls out a little ukulele and she starts to pluck this very cheery sounding song and it's very cute. And then about four bars in, she just goes, while she's playing the ukulele, she goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> I thought it was great because like, that's the sort of thing, let's, let's put it in the frame of Amuna, right? Right, well, how do you help so, solve Amuna? That's a great question. The current conditions, of of teachers not being in the normal spaces of children not being in the normal learning spaces like the opportunity to work in the way of emuna to for teachers to be vulnerable like this young woman who's screaming <laughs> to express the fact that this whole situation is so frustrating that instead of being a place of disempowerment from an educational standpoint there's something very powerful there because her students are also feeling very very much at a loss of, you know, also are kind of screaming, like, what's going on here? And instead of it being a point of distance between them, it's actually a point of commonality between the joints and together. And so when they sent me this clip, I'm already translating it into this Emuna education. Oh, well, that's actually a very good place for me to be in with them. And, and the fact that the children right now, your students, are at home. So that's a very interesting shift because they have been taken by the situation, which is, of course, this is the Alma Divirakiraute, right? This is circumstances that Hashem has arranged in accordance with his will, right? That's what it means. So this is the world that he creates, created and creates constantly in accordance with his will. So by arranging the students to be in what we would call them the natural Muna environment, like our, our educational system has taken them out of that. I remember my first, or when our oldest child first got, started going to school, a full day. I remember feeling like, wow, it's so, how am I handing over this little child into the Imuna environment of somebody else? Like I'm losing the best, you know, Roshavaruba, the best of her and her, and her energies are going to be in someone else's Imuna environment. Right. What does that look like? And it was very, very big adjustment for me. And also with every child, when they hit, you know, in Israel, when they, if, if you hold a child home after three, it's like, oy vay vay, you're ruining them for life. So my natural inclination would have kept them, it would have been to keep them in longer, but, you know, when in Rome, so to speak. Yeah. So, well, the place so conquered Rome. you know what I mean? So the, um, so, so this fact that we're shifting back into what's like the native Emuna environment, where the, where the students um, now have the, the ability to kind of steep in the home Emuna environment, which has been so depleted because everyone's out of the house so much. Right. So that's a really, it's, a, it's like that kind of upheaval is good for them. And it's also interesting, I was just thinking about it this morning. It's so interesting also for teachers because now you get to do something like this, where you get to think about this whole, this whole world of God awareness and talking about God and Emuna 
while you're in an environment shift that actually is forcing all these questions to the surface, which makes everyone so much more sensitive and vulnerable to the, to what is my, what is the degree of vitality and viability and, 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 um, and, and I'll call it like the, the, the power in my relationship with my creator. Like, where am I holding with that? So the kids get to experience that at home in their own way and go through their own, their own clarification together with their families. And then teachers are also, now you're taken out of the classroom. It doesn't mean you're necessarily less busy, but you're not in the same environment. And so it allows you to start to think about, well, maybe my focus in my teaching, like maybe that's not what teaching is all, maybe what I've been doing is not, maybe what we've been doing all this time is not what it's all about. So what, to build on that, how would you suggest that teachers really approach, now that they have this opportunity that you were talking about, they have the students that are in upheaval in a good way, and they're in a protected environment. They're not in upheaval, God forbid, in a bad environment. There are people in a good environment, and they're able to be more open to this. So how do you suggest that the, the teachers help students develop Amuna? Because one of the problems with Amuna is, is usually described as being a lock-solid, I know God exists the same way I know I'm sitting on a chair. I mean, so how do you help teachers develop something? Really? Why it doesn't say, I'm giving you an opening to talk about You know what I mean? To dissuade that That's actually the most, it's the biggest opportunity because as I have been trying to make clear, that place of vulnerability of saying, of saying, I am in the place, I am the place of seeking, right? We are in the place of seeking. We are in a place of need. We are in a place of dependence. And we recognize our dependence. And, and, um, and if I'm afraid, you know, so that's here. Here's a, you know, fear. Like, what do you do with your fear? So children have fears, right? Children have fears. And adults have fears, too. And so it's very powerful to be able to say, well, you know, this is a this is a can be a frightening experience. This whole business of a pandemic, right, is like oh, a frightening experience. Is it a frightening experience, and does it have to be a frightening experience? And what would make it not a frightening experience? And what gives a person resilience and strength in a time which, for many people, is a frightening experience? And so all of those questions of well, where do you get your where are you getting your power from? Where do you get your, 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 like that vital energy that's keeping everything vibrant and alive within yourself? Where is it coming from? Very often, it's not until whatever was the source of stability is removed that it's possible for us to start thinking about really where the source of our, our life, you know, our, our life vitality, where is it coming from? And so teachers have to do it for themselves. And when they're doing it for themselves, they're able to convey it to their students. If they haven't clarified that, that, that for themselves, they're not going to be able to give it over. And, and I think that it's good to have to have this, this period of berur, of clarification, uh, for an educator of where am I really holding in my amuna? Where am I holding in my relationship with God? Because I want to be able, my, my purpose as an educator is to educate my students to Jewish life, right? To living the rest of their lives in a vital and real, genuine Jewish way. That's my goal. It's not to teach them, it's not to teach them Chumash, right? It's not to teach them Navi, it's it's to educate them to Jewish life. And so to do that, I'll teach them Chumash. To do that, I will teach them 
dikduk, to do that I will teach them many things. I'm a shlicha, I'm, I'm an emissary of the family who has paid me to do their job, right? It's the, it's the parent's job to educate their child. And in lieu of being able to do that, they have appointed me as a shlicha, as an emissary. And, and so I am doing their work. And their work is not to teach only chumash or navi or dikduk or gemara. It's to teach, to raise the child, to raise the student into a future life as a fully engaged Jew. And so... Um, so if I'm looking at it from that perspective, the, the, we'll call it the skills. I don't know if you call them really, so the art, right? The art that I need available to me, because it's more than just a skill. The art that I need available to me is goes far beyond my uh, capacity to teach X material. It's something that's an inner quality that I must develop within myself in order to be able to transmit it. And, um, and when I, and, and so if I find that I don't have it, that strongly within myself if i find myself at a loss in a time like this so that's a good barometer of where i need to put some energy to develop within myself so i can be the best educator that for the sake of the children the sake of the students what kind of language or setting or context do you use to talk about god as an entity as a as a um, omnipresent omniscient benevolent entity that's in a personal relationship and also a national relationship with with us Okay, so first of all, using the language, whenever we talk about God, we're already in trouble because, <laughs> because we have to, we're worried that we're going to fall into a semantic pit of a, a student having associations with a particular word, which already brings with it a whole set of beliefs and understandings that might not be consistent with Jewish tradition and, and Jewish thought. So we've got to be careful, right? So sometimes I try and use language that's a different language. Like, um, like I might sit with a student who feels with students who are somewhat dismissive. And I, you know, I might say, well, um, you know, are, are we getting behind the, the concept of a creator, right? Do we feel strongly about the concept of creator that everything that we see ha didn't just become all by itself, but it was actually brought into existence. So most, most kids, if we're talking about, you know, kids who are of school age, right, you know, students of school age, they're going to be able to get behind that, even if they've been educated scientifically away from it. But they still feel it intuitively. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, like, our, our um, models of, you know, model by design, like a classic Rishonim models of, of um, the argument by design. So that appeals very strongly to students, not because it's simplistic, but because it's actually so intuitive, right? It's just like a very intuitive way of looking at the world. If something exists, min hastam, it was brought into existence. It didn't just become, it was brought into existence, just like things don't just pop into existence, you know, um, in, in my reality. So, Creator is usually an available one. Then you say, okay, creator. So then what? And we want to introduce the concept of like constant hashkacha or also orchestration, not just supervision, but orchestration. So instead of saying God, I could say like the organizing principle of all that exists, the one who brought everything into existence and who constantly maintains it in existence. Um, you know, unifying. 
the unity. And then, and then that actually we're borrowing, we're just borrowing from like our classical sources. Like one of my favorites is Rav Levi Yitzchak Mibadichiv would call God the chayus, the life, the vitality, the, the life force. The, the, that's something that, that's something that is, is, is helpful to us because it doesn't lock us into some kind of a cartoon guy with a white beard, you know, throwing down bolts, um, whatever, these, whatever the students pick up from their cultural experience, which you'd say, oh, they're free from that. No, they're not, right? It afflicts everybody. So, so to come away from that and sort of open out the discussion about God. And then on the personal level, um, to encourage hitbonenut, to encourage the, the, the focused contemplation and reflection upon and, uh, on, on the events of my own life, my family's life, my personal history, and even if I'm a young person, what I see in the world, the events that take place, and, and bringing it out broad, more and more broadly. Nationally, that's called, God is a God of history, personal history, and also national history, and also further, he's not only our God, it's, we're talking about God, it means the history of all of the worlds, and all of the peoples of the world, and everything that exists. And so, and so, to be attentive and aware. You know, one of the things that I, um, I was in environmental, I was originally in environmental education and pre-med before I went into Judaic studies academically. Wow. And um, one of the things that I loved was, and, and then I was able to sort of combine this together because when I was uh, a little bit further on, instead of just taking kids out into the woods to do sensory activities with them, blindfolded activities, um, sound activities, tactile activities, to make them more sensitized and to bring them out of the place of, you know, to, to embody them a little bit more in their relationship with reality. So that was something that I did when I was in university because I was part of an educational collective when I went to school in Buffalo. But so we worked with students and, and did a lot of, you know, it was all field work. Now, one of the things that I realized later was that all of that was very valuable in transmitting the lessons in Shar HaBachina of Chovas HaLavavas, of Chovot HaLavavot. And the, um, that Rabbeinu Bachaya makes a great emphasis in Shar HaBachina, which is basically becoming a person of discernment, to become a sensitive person of discernment and observation in one's relationship with reality as a means and a gateway of forming a relationship with God. And so, um, I would, instead of doing just outdoor work with students, it was shar habachina in the field. You know, we did shar habachina field work, which was really profound because that's something that students can relate to. I would love to have more tools to be more sensitive to the wonder and the glory and the manifest supervision and that is within all of existence. And we do this through our very emunadika way of teaching science and an emunadika way of teaching mathematics, emunadika way of teaching physics and biology, emunadika way of teaching history, emunadika way of teaching also Chumash and Navi and Afilu Dikduk and even the magnificence of Lashana Kodesh and its perfect, perfect symmetry and beauty and wonder. So like that emuna of the, uni the unity of that which exists only because God makes it so, right? And it's harmony is something that 
permeates and should permeate all of education. It's per, it go, but that depends on the teacher. <laughs> the teacher has to see it. The teacher has to know it. And then they're able to transmit it. It's not something that we get from the curriculum because the curriculum is either a set of facts or a gateway to dvekas, depending on the, the kli, the actual vessel of the educator and the one being educated. So I don't think it's so much about the, even, I don't even think it's so much about the words because, because a person in order to share emuna has to be suffused with emuna. And in so doing, it, it's conveyed even without having to speak too much about it. You can teach a Chumash class and it is an emuna class. It's a God class. It's not a Chumash class, or it's both, you know. But you could also be teaching earth science and have it be an Amuna class. It's not, I, I don't see them as being so far apart from each other. Like the Rambam says, you, 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 you develop love of God and attachment to God through, through vigorous contemplation of his Torah and his world. And his world also include, includes the personal world, like, you know, inside of myself, in my own personal history, and where have I seen... God's involvement in my life and to be attentive to that. It's, it's a, it's a bechina. It's, it's a, it's really a practice of deep discernment and observation. Based on what you just said, how do you touch on the presence of tragedy and evil in the world? Because that's one of the things that really lays over a student and really when someone is in their life adjacent to suffering and tragedy, it hits their amuna and it hurts it. My experience has been that the educators who, wind up causing harm, like it's harmful, what is, is the one, are the ones who come on with too much certainty and not enough vulnerability about the presence of tragedy in the world and the fact that it's not explicable to us. And so the, amuna, the, the way of Amuna is to, on the one hand, to be able to say, I, I wish, with a lot of compassion, I wish that I had the answers that would explain all of this tragedy and pain and suffering. One of the reasons why I wish I had the answers is not because I want to know, not because of that, but because I'm fully aware that having an understanding of the meaning of suffering is already a great alleviation of the suffering. So the greatest act of compassion that I could do for anybody would be to explain to them the meaning of their suffering. Just like if I, if, if, if someone is, it, we all understand this. It's like anybody who's in trouble, anybody who's hurt, when I teach my students, I say, I know that if you're, you're thinking right now, you would love to be living 500 years ago so that you could go to visit in Sfat with the Arizal and he will give you the answer as to why, because of the reincarnation of souls over many Gilgulim, that you are suffering what you're suffering right now. I, I, I understand the desire to know because we all understand that if I had certain knowledge of why this is necessary, it would be less painful. Even if the objective pain would not be different, if the situation would not be a whit changed, my knowledge, my dat, me having awareness of the meaning of this objective pain would alter completely my subjective experience so that it would be remarkably less painful. So, so clearly, if one could explain it, if we had an explanation for it, it would already alleviate a great deal of the suffering that exists. However, so on the one hand, I have to acknowledge that it is natural to want to know because it would be less painful if I only knew, even if I couldn't change it. 
However, while I hold that in one hand, I then open up the other hand and say, while I do not know what it means and I cannot tell you precisely what it means or even vaguely what it means, I am a a balas emuna, my emuna is what leads me to be certain that it has meaning, even if I don't know what the meaning is. So my strength in the face of adversity or one's strength in the face of adversity with an emuna is not from knowing what the meaning is, but knowing that it has meaning. And those, and those two states are completely compatible. They, can work, they work together. I can have those two, I can hold those two parts at the same time. My pain can be alleviated because my emuna, what's well, the other hand around, my pain can be alleviated because my emuna um, uh, fills me with a certainty of its meaning, even though I must suspend my need to know exactly what it does mean. Now, to convey that to someone, to a student, let's say, right? So I usually will work from situations that are close to me. Now, even though, um, you know, like it's sort of like therapeutic, therapeutic best practice is not to bring yourself too much into the room. And, and teachers are also taught that, like, don't make it about you, don't make it too personal. But sometimes it's very necessary. And um, you just have to be judicious about how and what you share. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give an example. So we have uh, our, one of our daughters was diagnosed. Actually, she hasn't really been diagnosed yet. That's a thing, you know. But um, we, uh, right before Pesach, and this is, we, we realized that she has had, you know, eye infections that keep on coming back over the last few months that have been treated and she went to the doctor and and as i saw they were recurring and recurring and it didn't seem as though the doctor was really um getting to it i finally said you know we we have to go to somebody else i'm not i don't feel that this is being treated properly so of course because of coronavirus all non-essential medical procedures are sort of discouraged especially in israel we're very you know the, the, we're quite strict about um, social distancing and uh, and uh, there was even uh, closures in in Jerusalem, so we managed to get her to an eye doctor, a different eye doctor, and so uh, three days before Pesach, um, she got into the doctor and the doctor did finally a really thorough examination. He said, "You're having an ophthalmological emergency that's life threatening. You need to go right now to the emergency room." And she was admitted to the hospital. And oh, throughout okay. Pesach, no, we were I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> it is as it is, right? This is the Alma Divaraki Ra'use. This is the world that God makes constantly in accordance with his will. But the reason why I'm sharing it, even though we're still in the middle of it, she was in and out of the hospital for, throughout the Chag. They let her, it was very interesting in Israel because it's uh, Pesach and everyone understands here how important it is to be home. So they released her for Leil HaSeder and they insisted that she be back in the hospital on Chag in the morning. So we went, we bent over backwards and did backflips to, to arrange for a transfer back to the hospital on the Chag with non-Jewish drivers, um, which got really complicated because uh, our, uh, the drivers who I normally would have reached who are, who are uh, Arab were um, not able to leave their villages because of a general closure. So we had a lot of complication, but anyway, um, so, so she's in a story of, for the last two weeks, she has been able to see. And um, slowly, slowly, she's getting some clarity back. 
and she's going to have treatment and, and this is going to be a follow-up situation for a very long time ahead of us. And she should only be well. Now, one right. of the things that I found really wondrous through the experience, right? So what's wondrous. And I've told this to her was that when she, we were in the thick of it and we didn't yet know whether she was responding to medication because there has to be a little bit of a gap between when they're doing these, you know, eye exams and the CTs and all this stuff. So, um, I said, Adi, you're, her name is Odle. So I said, I said, are you doing your, your, um, I'm so, I'm so uh, astounded by how much equanimity you have through this. I know it's not easy for you. And she said, she said, I said, you're not afraid about what could be. We've been very honest and open. She's a, she's at 18 years old. She's not a little girl. Um, and she said, well, you've described to me what the potential problems could be. And, you know, I've thought them over and I feel like if this is what Hashem wants, like I can, I can live with it. I can live with whatever. I can live with whatever it is. Wow. I can live with whatever it is. And I was like floored, you know, I was really floored. And I, and I said, you know, you're really tough. She is tough. You're really, really tough. But like, really, how are you feeling about it? And she said, I'm surprised also in myself, in a way, that I don't feel bad. I'm just, I'm concerned and I would like things to be better, but I don't feel full of, I'm not full of fear. And the reason why I bring it in like this, because it's very often only through that, like a challenge that is a, where we get to see where are my vulnerabilities? Like, where am I really holding in my, in, do I have confidence that that which occurs is actually divinely scripted and for the best and whatever it is, it's good. Whatever it is, it's good. Whatever it is, it's good. Right. If we say like, that's the crux of, of right. Of saying whatever it is, it's good. Whatever God does of the merciful one does, it's really, that is the best thing. So to be um, pushed to, to, the, to the wall to a certain extent, that's very revealing, you know? And so when we talk about tragedy or suffering with students, it's okay to go to the place of talking about real tragedy and real suffering and trying to discover, well, what does it mean to be a mamin? What does it mean? Like what, you know, what sort of resilience is provided through this thing called emuna through tragedy, because tragedy is not, nobody gets a petik, nobody gets a, a note that comes down from heaven that says, here it is, you know, maybe the Arizal got it, maybe there were certain great people with prophecy, you know, if we, we were living in the age of prophets, you could find that out, but we don't have access to that information. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us in our development to have that information denied to us and to forge forward nonetheless? And does that make us greater people? And, and just on that basis alone, is it something that I'm willing to go through? Am I willing to not go through necessarily the suffering, but engage with this thing called tragedy, this thing called suffering in the way of emuna, because I understand what it creates in me to do so. Like, you know, you can, why, uh, students can read, you know, Man's Search for Meaning. They could read a little Viktor Frankl. They could get a little logotherapy in and see what does it mean to be a person of, 
emuna under extremes. Tragedy is just part of life. There's, a, there's no, anybody who tries to whitewash it. Now I said before, there's like, where's the damage come from? So sometimes you have people with authoritative voices who it becomes a little bit like tragedies become a story of blaming somebody for something. That I don't like. <laughs> I don't like it because I don't know that people necessarily got their, um, I had a teacher who used to say, my teudat nevuad lo igia badoan, you know. <laughs> my prophecy certificate didn't yet come in the mail. Um, you know, so that's one part of it. It's like, you know, don't, it's, it's, it's difficult to, t- to speak authoritatively about something that's essentially hidden from us. But, but furthermore, it winds up being that faith is a, is, is a, is a story also about blame which is something that you and I have spoken about before, right? That, that education to Emuna somehow for many students winds up being about like, if you're not doing it right, then you're lost. If you don't, if, okay. So, you know, that's, that will take off the table. That's, that doesn't belong in the, that doesn't belong in the room because it's Emunat Omein, right? It's from the a language of nurturing and development and, Mordechai is Omeina Tadasai and, you know, that's the, 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 the aspect of raising and building and being an ima, uh, the, the ima of emuna, right? right. Being the Torati Mecha, you know, midwife, so to speak, of a child or a student's emuna. And, and seeing it not as a confrontation, but actually that when students are asking difficult questions to be able to affirm them and say, that's the question that everybody has asked. That's a question all the philosophers have asked. That's a question all the chachamim have asked. And so we want to engage with it and we don't dismiss it because otherwise how will they build their emunah? Amazing. I want to thank you very much for all of your time and effort in this. This has been fantastic and incredibly illustrative of, first of all, the kind of amazing teacher that you are, but also the incredible depth of understanding of how to train someone in order to train others in order to be able to do this. So I really appreciate your time and effort on this. Thank you. Bissim Haraba, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be at all useful, if it's going to be useful. Um, I want to tell you one story. I want to share one story. May I? Yeah, please. Do you have time? Okay, because I was thinking I was going to be in Philadelphia in May. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So ba- way back when, when this first came up, the, you know, the conference first came up, I, I had one story from my childhood that came up, right, in my mind. And I thought, I want to tell your educators this story. So here it goes. When I was, um, I went to Yeshiva Flatbush, which is, you know, a very well-respected day school in New York City. Um, and that's where I went for grade school, or for most of grade school. And um, I don't remember if we were in first grade or in second grade when we got our first Sidur. It probably was first grade already. And it's that Sidur Shiloh, you know, the standard. Another one. I, I got one. Remember it. Yeah, the blue one. And so I had my Sidur Shiloh. And I remember uh, we were also just learning to read and had learned to read. And I remember looking at the Sidur and I saw that it says Yud and Yud. And the teacher told us to say Adni, right? right? So, and I remember looking at it and thinking, well, that's not how you would pronounce that. (laughs) Why are they telling us to say Adni? I I was a little embarrassed to ask. I was five. I I started school a little bit early. So um, 
and I remember looking at those two letters, the Yud and the Yud, and thinking, how does that add up to Adni? Now, I remember raising my hand and asking the teacher why, if it says Yud and Yud, we're not pronouncing it like it says. So she said, out of respect for God. So I said, okay. And I went home and I asked my father. And he said the same thing. He said, out of respect for God. It's not, we don't say it as it's written. And I said, okay. But, you know, I still, after, after time went on, and I learned a little bit more, I said, I still don't understand about that Yud and Yud. What is that Yud and Yud? It doesn't say Yud Kevavke. It says Yud and Yud. So it took a very many years more of learning until I found out about that Yud and the Yud. It took a long time. And because also maybe because I'm not Sephardic. And had I been <laughs> praying with a Sephardic Sidur that has the proper names written out as they should be written, I would have known better. But, but I was not praying with a Sephardic Sidur. So, you know, Edot uh, Mizrach. So not Sephardic, but Edot Mizrach. And so I didn't know. Anyway, it took many more years until I finally got an answer to what is this Yud and Yud about. Now, I wanted to present to your teachers, to your educators, the question, why does it say Yud and Yud? How many of our teachers, how many of our teachers who are teaching Tefillah, who are teaching Kriya, who are teaching Yisodot Yadut, how many of them can answer why a Sidur says Yud and Yud to express God's name? I think extraordinarily few. So that's the kind of thing that, like, based on whatever we have as educators, that's the limit to which we can provide. And if you have a student who asks you, what's the Yud and Yud? And you have a good answer. The answer is it's disrespectful to say, to pr but, but, you don't, but those two Yuds are not to be pronounced as they're written either. Right. That's so not their intent. They're so, signifying. So you should you should uh, alleviate the suspense and tell everyone what the what the real reason is for the yud and yud. Okay, so the way it goes is like this: is that we have two names that are being interposed with one the other. So we have the first yud is representative of the yud of yudke bavke. The last yud is representative of the final yud of adni, of the name adni. And and the letters, if you open up a sidur, let's say of edot mizrach. So if it has kavanot, which is like very, it's very deep Kabbalah and all these things, not saying you have a Kabbalistic discourse with your six-year-old. Nevertheless, it's important for the teacher to know that that's called making a yichud, is that God as he is. When we say the name Adni, we're trying to express God in his essence through right. the language that we can speak, which is the name Adni. And that's right. called making a unification of those two names. And that's represented by those two yuds. It took me many years of learning until I finally saw something inside. Potech et yadecha, is potech et yudecha. You take these two inter interwoven names and you accordion them out. And that's the full expression of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And that's what it's for. And so there's all of this world of understanding and emunah that's embedded in the things that we are teaching our children every single day. But we're not aware of it, and we're not there. And so we can't convey it. And so it's good, because they force us, through their questions and their needs, they force us to become what we can become. That's amazing.
I want to thank you again for your time. This has been fantastic and amazing. And even the extra piece there at the end was worth the entire thing we did before. That. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot all about it. And then I came back to me and I was like, wow, I still remember being a little girl and asking and then not getting an answer. So I, I stopped asking. Yeah, that's actually uh, one of the most unfortunate problems is trying to convince students that their goal is to ask questions and not to be quiet and let me finish the material. I wish you the greatest, most wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and helping us out. And everyone should just be well, healthy, strong, for, uh, for good. Thank you.